And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, the Sunday edition, of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where we try to cover all the things that normally people haven't been thinking about for a very long time, except these days, the unthinkable has become more and more part of our present, almost 24-7 reality. So tonight we're going to do an experiment. Um, I'm going to try to have a political UFO, UAP, extraterrestrial conversation. And we're going to try to encompass all the vagaries of current terrestrial domestic politics and figure a way through the labyrinth to where we, I believe, all of us want to go, which is a successful transition from a pre- to a post-disclosure world. And um, I've been meaning to ask Steve, my good friend Steve Bassett, who has been a stalwart activist in these vineyards for literally decades, around the same time frame that I've been looking at artifacts on Mars and the Moon and other bodies of the solar system, realizing slowly that we were surrounded by the echoes of ancient civilizations, ancient cultures, and ancient peoples, without whom we would not be here. But for some reason, we have been cut off from this extraordinary historical fact. And we have been living in large part because it has been enforced upon us with a kind of delusional self-history that humans are only around, you know, civilization is only 6,000 years old and humans are something less than 30,000. When in fact, there are extraordinary truths to be found not only in the current NASA data of what's out there and who it may one time have belonged to, but our relationship to it. And I believe, and I think I can support that with some evidence in our discussion tonight, that this is one of the prime reasons why there has been an extraordinary long cover-up for the last 75 years. I did not realize, literally until I was writing tonight's uh, promo for the show, that it's been 75 years before this weekend that the modern era of UFOs, UAPs, ETs, things that go bump in the night and fly around in luminous craft, actually, for Americans, began. Because it was 75 years ago this weekend that Max Brazel went out, uh, I believe it was July 2nd, which was yesterday morning, 75 years ago yesterday morning, and found after a violent New Mexico thunderstorm. And boy, do we have some buttes here in the land of enchantment. Anyway, he went out after the thunderstorm to try to round up the cattle, which, of course, you know, are easily stampeded and lots of lightning and rain and hail and the usual stuff of summer thunderstorms can really stir up a fuss. So as he's riding along trying to find the strays, he comes across one of those vistas which are readily apparent out here if you 
even visit briefly, he looks out across the prairie and he sees between him and some of his cattle bunched up next to a bunch of hills in the distance, this incredible field of glittering confetti-like stuff all over the ground, swept into little piles by sagebrush and, and you know, weeds and, you know, the, the kind of rudimentary grass that grows here in, in the prairies. And he obviously gets down off the horse because he can't go through it without trying to figure out what it is that's going to damage the cattle. And he realizes that he's stumbled across something that's like nothing he's ever encountered before. It looks metallic. It's got lots and lots of pieces, and it's ranging from confetti size up to, you know, spars and I-beams and little broken rods and, you know, just a melange of debris, obviously artificial, obviously made of something that's very, very shiny. I mean, it looks to him like aluminum foil. So, you know, he dismounts and he picks up, you know, some pieces and he, you know, how you do with foil, it's almost like instinctual, you, you, you crumple it. And he does that and it uncrumples back, meaning it snaps back into its previous configuration, regardless of what he does. He smashes it flat, he sits it on the ground, he steps on it with his boots, it always returns to its original form. Thus was the beginning of the so-called Roswell legend. 75 years ago this weekend, the most obviously well-known story in UFO history, in American UFO history, was born. We're now three quarters of a century later, and there's still incredible uncertainty as to what actually happened that night in 1947 when that violent thunderstorm ripped apart the skies and something, something fell out of it, out of the storm, out of the skies, out of the night. We're going to spend the next three hours talking about that and a whole bunch more and what's happened now politically 75 years later as we're poised on the edge in many different directions of finally understanding larger pieces of this extraterrestrial puzzle, including how we fit in. And that's where, of course, the NASA data comes in. So let me start at the beginning. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the show, welcome, welcome. We have something called Radio with Pictures, which means if you go to the uh, URL for The Other Side of Midnight, theothersideofmidnight.com, and you click on tonight's banner, which has that really interestingly stylized artistic view of the Capitol with, uh, well, it could be fireworks, they could be exploding suns, they could be dazzling spaceships entering our 3D existence from hyperspace. Make of it what you will. It just appealed to me as a kind of a otherworldly 4th of July celebration. So go to that banner, click on it. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the banner on the guest page, you will see fast links to items, Richard and Barbara. 
Click on My Items. That will take you to that section of Radio and Pictures where I have displayed some links and some images, and we'll just go through them. As we have done for the last, oh, several months of shows now, since um, December of 2021, we're featuring some NASA news because quietly, unbeknownst to most Americans, because they're inundated with news and you can't pay attention to everything these days, I mean, really, there has been very quiet but steady progress on the Americans returning to the moon front. The giant SLS rocket, SLS stands for Space Launch System, the largest rocket that we've constructed as a nation since the retirement of the epic Saturn V back in the 1960s. This new moon rocket and its Orion spacecraft was trundled out to the pad a few weeks ago, underwent a successful uh, wet countdown demonstration test, meaning they put the rocket on the pad, they filled it with fuel and oxidizer, liquid oxygen, and then they counted down to a few seconds before T minus zero, which would be liftoff, and then they stopped the count. They drained the fuel, they checked everything, and then yesterday and uh, yesterday morning really early, ending uh, uh, yesterday afternoon, they rolled the moon rocket, the SLS booster, back into the vehicle assembly building, which is about four miles uh, down this incredible causeway. If you're ever in Florida and at the Cape, you need to walk that causeway. It's very, very humbling. Anyway, it's back in the VAB, and they're going to be replacing some seals, doing some other small refurbishments that uh, came to light during the test. And then the next time, it goes back to the pad, which will be sometime in mid to late August, or maybe the first week in September, will be when it's in progress of finally, ultimately returning manned hardware, human hardware, American hardware capable of carrying American astronauts to the moon. And that unmanned first test of the Artemis moon rocket system, the rocket plus the spacecraft, will commence, again, the launch will be sometime between mid-August and probably the first week in, in September. So if you click on that link, item number one in my items, it will give you uh, the uh, Artemis blog. You can keep track of all the daily and weekly developments, kind of follow your own countdown, because this is the spacecraft, this is the mission, which conceivably could blow the doors off the cover-up of the ancient extraterrestrial artifacts that have been waiting for millennia for mankind to return on the moon. And as the weeks progress, we'll get further and further into this. And then finally, as the mission proceeds, we'll go through step by step how the television and imaging systems on the Artemis mission can in fact at certain times, give us stunning views of what 99.999999% of humans tonight do not know, that there are the remains of an extraordinary ancient high-tech civilization all across the moon, and that was photographed and seen by the astronauts from Apollo, 
And for some reason, they just kind of neglected to tell the rest of us. Well, we'll unwind that story as part of this developing new chapter in this unfolding saga. Anyway, um, item number two on the same page, right below the Artemis updates, we have the link to the James Webb Space Telescope. This, of course, was launched back in uh, 2021, in December, Christmas, and we have been maintaining a kind of a running view of its progress, because it had to get into orbit, it then had to reach the final destination, the so-called halo orbit out behind uh, the Earth, uh, about um, a million miles behind the Earth in the direction away from the Sun. And there's this big, long orbit that it takes about six months to wander in this halo orbit around a kind of a central gravitational focus. There's a couple, three other spacecraft that uh, uh, NASA and other agencies have placed into this particular region. It's one of the semi-stable regions in the Earth-Moon system called an L2 point, L meaning uh, the French mathematician who mathematically calculated these points of stability back in the uh, 18th century, named Lagrange. Anyway, the L2 point is semi-stable. You don't need a lot of fuel to kind of hang out there. You need a little, but the computers kind of monitor progress and all that. And so, according to the latest prognostications, if space technology stopped developing tonight, I know, this is a thought experiment, okay? Kind of, you know, hang with me. If space technology stopped developing tonight, meaning no new rockets, no new space systems, no new spacecraft, no new propulsion technologies, hint, hint, the Webb telescope, because of the accuracy of the launch in uh, December of last year, has enough onboard fuel to function now, get this, to function autonomously in that halo orbit for the next 20 years. 20 years. A generation. Look, Ma, no hands. Now, obviously, with entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and others, like Rocket Lab, the ability to visit the Webb telescope, even if it is orbiting kind of like a million miles behind the Earth, um, is going to become very routine, which means it will be capable of being serviced, just like Hubble in low Earth orbit. The Hubble Space Telescope only orbits like 250 to 300 miles up. Webb is a million miles away. Now, you would normally think, well, there's no way we're ever going to go there. Um, actually, there is. And uh, Musk may be the guy developing it. So, that potential <clears throat> extraordinary development of new space technology aside, this telescope, this James Webb telescope, is set to produce extraordinary images and extraordinary science and extraordinary breakthroughs for the next 20 years. Now, why can we confidently say that? Because of the redundancies on board. It's got two of almost everything, uh, which is the way NASA designs missions, particularly one this incredibly complex. So if you want to follow the progress of the Webb Space Telescope mission, 
around July 12th, which is a week and uh, well, maybe almost two weeks from now, they're going to be downlinking the first data taken of deep space. And we are promised images that will absolutely curl your toes or knock your socks off or any one of a number of other cliches for scientific astonishment. So kind of stay tuned for that. Now, the backdrop to our extraterrestrial conversation on this July 4th weekend, on the 246th anniversary of the birth of the United States, is this recent article in um, Newsweek and other mainstream publications coming off a paper published by NASA under the aegis of the National Academy of Sciences back in January. This is kind of how slow the official chain of checks and balances kind of works in, in Washington. They, they kind of put all this stuff together in a paper in January. We're only learning about it now, you know, six months later. The Martian rover Curiosity, about 10 years ago, drilled some samples in a place called Yellowknife, which was at the base of this uh, three-mile-high mountain that they've been climbing in the center of this 100-mile-wide uh, uh, feature on, on Mars called uh, Gale Crater. And the drilling was done to see if water had ever pooled and flowed in the lowest levels of the crater floor. Water means life. Where there's water and life, there are organics. Where there are organics, there are signatures that tell you you're looking at biology, even if you can't see seal, seals, cells rather. What do I mean by seals? Must have seals on the brain. Cells and, uh, you know, forms and morphologies and things like that. So what Curiosity did in this drilling now 10 years ago is they analyzed the uh, composition of the muds, the ancient fossilized muds that they were drilling into. And resu the results of those uh, analyses indicated that carbon was mysteriously depleted of certain common isotopes that are found ordinarily in nature in carbon deposits that have not been the product of biological systems. In other words, non-life geological processes. For some reason, and there are theories, and I have my own, uh, life seems to want to really uptake carbon-12, which is an isotope, and it kind of doesn't like carbon-13 even though carbon-13 and carbon-12 are identical chemically, and the only difference is one extra neutron, uh, which raises the atomic number from 12 to 13. It's that extra mass that in the mainstream models means that uh, it's slightly less adaptable to absorption and incorporation into uh, chemistry and biochemistry. So there's this selection among living organisms for what's called carbon-12 as opposed to carbon-13. So on Earth, if you encounter a deposit in an ancient rock which is depleted in carbon-13 and has a lot of carbon-12, we're talking now, you know, maybe 100 parts per million, something like that, 
Not a lot, but easily discernible with current technology. It means more than likely, like 99.99% of the time, you're dealing with an ancient reservoir of formerly living organisms that were only, the only echo of their former existence is now the carbon signature, the carbon-12 that they left behind when they decayed. Well, that's exactly last uh, uh, 10 years ago what Curiosity found on Mars. We have been looking for decades for the signature of life. NASA has had this mantra, you know, follow the water. They've got these incredibly now too sophisticated rovers, Curiosity and Gale, and Perseverance over Jezero, which is like a thousand miles away and north in the other hemisphere. And the the goal has been to find the signature, the organic signature, the carbon isotopic signature indicating once living systems on Mars. Well, they found it. And it was has been published in this mainstream paper, authorized, peer-reviewed, vetted, sanctified, okayed, given the green light, whatever cliche you want, by the National Academy of Sciences, which is probably the most prestigious scientific academy on the planet, the Russian Academy and the French Academy notwithstanding. So, under a situation where on Earth, if these results had been discovered and then published, 90% of scientists would say, oh my God, life used to exist in this very, very ancient rock, you know, be it 500 million, a billion, two billion years old. But because the discovery was made on Mars, the game, for some reason, is different. And as I said last night, um, I, I, I kind of blame Carl Sagan, because my old colleague and friend Carl Sagan, who was a very unique individual, in a world of unique individuals, Carl was one of a kind. I can I can attest to that, having spent you know some weekends at his place there in Cornell, with him and Linda. Carl was unique. Anyway, he coined this phrase decades ago, which, frankly, I think has been the bugaboo of science. I think it set real science back, if not years, maybe even decades. Because what Carl said in a burst of you know how Carl used to be. Um, he said, if, um, if science is to be taken seriously, extraordinary claims require, demand, extraordinary evidence, which, of course, is a dagger to the heart of science, because science is not supposed to even be cognizant or aware or acknowledge that one discovery is more important, more exciting, more tantalizing, more extraordinary than the other. Science is supposed to be objective, where you weigh numbers and facts and accumulated evidence, and you're not really concerned with outcomes. You're just concerned with the process of verifying that what you've got is real data, truth, in other words, verifiable truth. Boy, is that a hard commodity to come by these days. And so by introducing the idea that some claims of discovery are more extraordinary than others. I mean, I really tackled this head-on back when Carl was very much with us 
uh, in a feature story that I uh, uh, wrote or was written about me in Omni magazine. And I, you know, I, I tried to get him into a debate to kind of, you know, come full circle and, and answer the question, why would you introduce a kind of a slippery, gooey, squishy, psychological term into what should be just objective science looking at numbers? And he never would. He would never really discuss in public where he got this idea. But what it's done is to weight the scales so that certain scientific discoveries are innately so fraught with implications, political, religious, um, cultural, sometimes even racial, that the amount of evidence required to overcome people's uh, innate conservatism in accepting the new data, the new paradigm, uh, is well nigh to overwhelming. And one of those areas has been the idea that we are not alone. And scientists who are working in the system, this is mainstream science, they are very cognizant of, of Sagan's dictum. And so the more extraordinary the potential social impact of a discovery, the more cautious, the more conservative, the more timid, the more afraid, let's, let's hit it on the head. Scientists are to come out resolutely and say, okay, we've discovered this. They'll use words like the probability of, and the coincidence factor mitigating, and the, in other words, it's, it's what I call Emily Dickinsonian classic terminology. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Don't hit it right on the head. Don't ever sound positive because if you're tripped up, oh my God, the, you know, the fear of, of God and country and your career. So this announcement of the detection of sizable deposits of carbon-12 with really incredible depletion of carbon-13, which on Earth would be automatically assumed by almost every scientist, okay, there used to be a bunch of microorganisms hanging out there and eating happily, and when they all died, they left the carbon behind. That reasoning, which would be autom almost automatic now, after decades of this kind of work here on Earth, in paleontology, in archaeology, in, in, you know, some of the more, shall we say, soft scientists that did not used to have quantifiable numbers, that same reasoning, when transposed to the results of the Curiosity mission, are totally different because they snuck up on the idea that maybe this could be due to biology or maybe it's something really unique to Mars that's chemical. It might even be due to interplanetary slash interstellar dust clouds which they think are depleted in carbon-13 and enriched in carbon-12 by some as yet unknown natural process. Um, I have answers for that too, if you're interested. Anyway, bottom line, I think tonight we're living in AD. That BC was before the detection of this carbon, AD is after detection. But you will not get any scientist to commit tonight that NASA has found evidence of ancient life on Mars. The only place you're going to hear that discussion 
and the implications thereof is right here. Oh, one final thing before we go to break at the bottom of the hour. Elon Musk, mentioned him earlier, um, is an atheist. He's not a Catholic. He's not a Baptist. He's not a <clears throat> Presbyterian. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. He's not a Buddhist. He is an atheist. <clears throat> so suddenly in the last day or so, he and his family, all except one, one uh, uh, now daughter, uh, showed up in a one-on-one -on -one visit with Pope Francis. And my question, and the question on a lot of minds is, why? Why is Elon Musk visiting Pope Francis? Anyway, on this July 4th weekend, I thought we would go out at the end of the first break with this. This is a blast from the past. For those of you old enough to remember, this is a gal named Kate Smith, and this is God Bless America on this 4th of July extraterrestrial weekend.
Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this July 4th weekend, 2022, 246 years after the founding of the United States, an extraordinary experiment now poised at the edge of something, something almost existential. And so we're going to talk about the tonight, and we're going to talk about how the extraterrestrial presence, as my friend Steve often refers to it, may in fact be an antidote to so many things that seem to ail our current society. We shall tackle them one by one and try to see if any of them fit to perpetuate this experiment called America. Makes you think of a lot of things. We're going to be in this yet, Mom. Stephen Bassett is uh, a very interesting guy. I've known Stephen for, good grief, how long have I known Stephen? It's obviously been decades. He's been as dedicated to his pursuit of extraterrestrials as I have been. And um, we have actually taken some very different paths, very different. He is the, he's certainly a political activist, a disclosure advocate, and the executive director of a group he formed many decades ago, back in 1996, called the Paradigm Research Group to end the government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. He has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race, and he has lectured around the world on the political implications of the current UAP ET phenomena and has given over 1,200 radio and TV interviews in that same period of time. His uh, advocacy work and PRGs has been extensively covered by all kinds of national international media, including CNN, Fox, MSNBC, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. And without further ado, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight, Steve. Yes, Richard. Good to be with you again, as always. I, wa- I wanted to ask this question, and, and we will, we'll, I'm going to introduce Barbara in a moment. I want to get this question on the record first. Why have you been this persistent, as I have been, in pursuing this separate path? What do you envision is the goal, the upside of confirming that our interrelationship with denizens of the galaxy is deep and long and ancient and in fact determinative of the human race itself. Why have you been so persistent? Well, there's two questions there. Why have I been persistent and what do I see as the outcome of uh, achieving our fundamental goal of disclosure? These are, these, these are questions I can do a couple hours on each. You know that, Richard, but let me be, be brief. Well, um, we have three hours. We don't have to do it all in, you know, two minutes. 
Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, first of all, you, you have to do something with your life. I mean, that's kind of what you have to do. I mean, for some people, it's very straightforward. Uh, for others, it's not so straightforward. But you have to do something with your life. And um, I am a person that is has always pretty much been uh, looking at meaning, purpose, that kind of thing, and not just say something simple like accumulating money. Though I kind of wish I could have done both. But the point is, is you got to do something in your life. And I made a decision in 1995, the winter of 95, that what I wanted to do with my life, and it, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could make a decision like that. Prior to that, I was very confused. Let's just leave it at that. And I decided that this issue was had come of age and that if I was going to choose a path, this could be a quite extraordinary and interesting path to take. Uh, uh, and uh, secondly, I had a bit of money and I realized I don't need to go get a job to do this because there aren't any anyway, but I could- Wait, 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 wait. You at one time had money? <laughs> I had a little money You never point. told it me. A <laughs> no, I assure you it. You know, I uh, it wasn't enough to, 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 to get excited about. Because this, this business so, does not make money. No way. Yeah, uh, but uh, this was 95, and there were a couple of things that I did back then. I'd read a couple of books. I had read your book about, oh, maybe a year and a half prior to that. Uh, but in 95, I read Mac's book, Abduction. This was a key thing for me. It was uh, the, the, the trigger that really uh, uh, gave me the, the, uh, the opportunity to make the decision. And so that affected me. Then I said, okay, I really think that's what I want to do. And uh, I don't know if I've told the story before, but uh, then I said, okay, well, I've never been to a conference. I, I should go to one of these conferences. Never been to one. You mean, and there was you, one. you mean UFO conference? Yeah, yeah. You know how I hate UFO, but yeah, that's what they were called. I UFO love conference. UFO. I know you do. But like I go. love so, steampunk and other incredible shrines of our history, it's never going to go away. It'll just take on a whole new meaning. Sorry, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm dedicated to killing it and burying it somewhere in the backyard. But look, this was a 95. There was a conference in uh, in uh, Los Angeles at LAX. Uh, I believe it was the Hilton Airport, but it was down there. And I said, well, well, well I'm going to go to L.A. Hilton. Yes, yes. No, it will. Yeah. Okay. So I went to my first UFO conference as a way of just sort of seeing if if this was something I wanted to do. And uh, But wait, wait. Well, Why, out of all the gin joints, you know, Casablanca – why did you pick the castigated Paul of UFOs? Come on. What, what, mm. what told you? It? Some little voice whispered in your ear, this is the horse to bet on. Uh, the fact is that for me, it wasn't about UFOs. Uh, it was about ETs. Ah. When, I was, when I was 15 years old, in, in my teens, and say, say 15, for instance, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was not religious. I was essentially, I guess you could say an atheist. I simply wasn't religious. I didn't have any political biases. Um, and I was just a military brat leading a very basic middle-class life. But I, but I love science fiction. And then I started seeing the occasional article about this phenomenon, which I would read, right, naturally. If you, if you love science fiction, you're going to mm -hmm. pick up on that. And, I, and there, were, there were a number of them because this issue has been covered all the way back into the 40s by the media up to a point. Uh, it, it, there are thousands of articles. But of particular note, the age of 15, I read the Look Magazine article about Betty and Barney Hill. And it's oh. simple. I read it 
I applied simple logic to it, little common sense, and said, oh, they had an encounter with extraterrestrials. Uh, and other things I read concluded the same thing. In other words, based on simple common sense, when I was a teenager, it was quite clear to me that there was this extraterrestrial phenomena, uh, period. Now, I wasn't involved. I hadn't done any research, but I'm simply reading what the press is writing. Okay, so I didn't do anything about it. It was like cool, but hey, I'm I'm a kid. I got a lot of things on my plate. I got a lot to worry about. So, so Lula, I just you didn't must you, you must have read John Fuller's classic, "Interrupted Journey," which was riveting about Betty and Barney's experience. As a ch- I read it later, but as a as a kid, I was just seeing stuff in the news or maybe on TV, uh, and then reading lots of Heinlein and Asimov. Uh, so again, uh, I never got into the issue, uh, but from the beginning, it was never about UFO. There's extraterrestrials here, and I knew that. But so what? So when I'm when I'm in 1995, as I'm starting to consider possibilities, when I uh, considered this issue, it wasn't wow. I want to get involved in extra UFOs. Oh God. No, I mean, I, if I did, I could have maybe joined MUFON and gone out and studied some cases. No, I wanted to get involved in it because the 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 extraterrestrial issue was coming of age. This was confirmed to me by by Max's work and the fact that he had the guts to write uh, abduction, a, a human encounter with aliens, and he was a Harvard, uh, the head of the Harvard psychology at uh, uh, Cambridge Psychology Department. He was a Pulitzer Prize winner. So and then and 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 so that's. So I saw this thing coming of age and getting resolved and getting resolved. <laughs> oh, how naive not, we were. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Well, well, uh, but still, it was, resolution for me in 95 wasn't, oh, we're going to prove UFOs are real. I mean, that to me, that, that, that whole phrase is ridiculous. We were going to confirm somehow the ET reality. So anyway, in part of my decision-making process, I went down to this conference called, I think it was UFO West or something, down in L.A. I was in San Luis Obispo, so it wasn't a particularly long drive. Well, guess who was speaking at that conference? Hmm. guy named Hoagland, if I recall. <laughs> and so I had read your book, Vitamin of Mars, and so I definitely wanted to go to your lecture. So I went to your lecture, and it was, it was pretty cool. It was very interesting. You're always interesting. And then afterwards, you hung around, and I, I, I kind of hung around too. And it was this big round table there. I remember we were in this like cafeteria with the tablecloths, and I was sitting, and you just sat down, and we started talking. And here we are, still well, there talking. There were others there. There, there was three or four other people there. They, they had, they had, you know, your fans. Your fans mm-hmm. were, were, were hanging with you to, to, to listen uh, and, and sit at your feet. And I sat down. Okay. <laughs> now, because I'd read your book, it was cool. So I sat down and I, and I made a few comments, uh, and uh, along with the others. Uh, and I also had a pad with me too. I always carried a valise back then. And so I make a couple of notes. And at some point, you looked at me. And you said something along the lines of what – are you a journalist or do you look really serious or interested in this? And then we had a kind of exchange. Uh, and what was important about that moment uh, – and I think I've told you this before, Dick, but it was a thousand years ago – is that whether you knew it or not, you in that moment made me feel like, hey, welcome to the party. Uh, yeah. Uh, you get, like, get into this. Uh, sure, you look like a serious person, somebody's sparse guy. Get into this. Well, you're welcome to be part of this. 
that that was not trivial, and I noted that. Now, where it got interesting <laughs> is that you had another presentation. I'm pretty sure this happened at that time. I may be confusing it, but I think you then had another presentation that evening. Yeah, it was then, all the way back in 1995. And this was like a – you know, what they call – you know, you have your lecture and then you've got your workshop kind of thing. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So I attended this, and I'm feeling emboldened because we had this discussion. And so – and it was in an outdoor. It was kind of like a tent set up. Uh, probably had capacity of about 150, 200. And so I attended this, and the first thing I noticed was the pet was packed. There was not a place to sit. It was absolutely packed. And then you, I noticed you were having a problem with your uh, slide situation. Your automatic hand slide thingy wasn't working. And so I said, look, I will, I'll move the slides for you. <laughs> and you said, great. And so I pulled up a chair next to the machine and then every time you gave me the cue i popped the slide and so on my first engagement of this issue in that way i'm helping the great richard hoagland in his slide presentation right so now i'm really in right so i'm getting sucked in and then the third thing i noticed which i and i'll I'll stop there is that and this is not going to shock anybody you went on for i think three hours (laughs) Yeah, Three about- solid hours, and I'm and I'm and I'm cool. I'm cool because I'm running the slide machine. You can go as long as you want. I'm feeling really cool, but the thing I noticed, not a single person left that. An outdoor setting with the tent thing over it or whatever the hell. They stayed there for three solid hours. They didn't even go to the bathroom. I was impressed by that. All right, and so I, I went back up to San Luis Obispo and considered my options, and the sum of it all was that I decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to volunteer. If I can volunteer, I'm going to get involved that way. And I got really lucky because in the back of Mac's book, Abduction, was the uh, address and phone number for Peer, his, his, his program for extraordinary experience work, uh, experience uh, research, which he set up in Cambridge, not far from the Cambridge Hospital, where he was the head of uh, psychology. And I, I don't know. I guess I was imbued with the with the little little passion or something or naivete and I simply called him up and I was able to persuade the uh, the general manager the manager of his operation a, a wonderful woman by the name of Karen Wesolowski that to agree to let me come and just volunteer as a development person because I had a lot of business I had some business background business consulting that kind of stuff and they, they you know you could always use development and that was it and so I said okay uh, I said wow what a great door to go through and so I sold everything off cleared everything off emptied my bank account packed up my car was an RX-7 and proceeded to drive across country to uh, to interact with uh, to join up with Pierre and uh, on the way I stopped in Washington uh, where I have family and then I stopped in Weehawken where you yes, were staying yes the knock I on the you, door. I, I open uh, it. Uh, yeah, I'm and going. I'm going. I'm going up there. There's Steve. <laughs> and you were irritated because prior to my actually arriving there, right? Sometime between the time I I I, I encounter you at the the conference in the UFO conference in Los Angeles, and my trip left, I had called you and talked about maybe being a assistant to you, meaning, or at least sometime earlier. Before I made the decision uh, with the, the institute, uh, the peer, 
I talked about being assistant and it wasn't it wasn't the right time or whatever, but you know, you appreciated the offer. And so fine. So we talked about that. But then I came through on my way to Boston and to tell you that while well, I'm going up to volunteer for Pierre and you were irritated because, wait a minute, I thought you were going to volunteer for me. Mm-hmm. Right. What what happened to that? <laughs> and so we had a nice, nice encounter there. I, I don't know. I stayed for, I think, just the day. And then I headed up and I arrived in Boston on uh, January 26th to set up a little office and work. For peer, and that is that is how it began. Now, again, understand, I'm I'm starting off by volunteering for a Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard professor, who is who has entered this field with great uh, courage and risk, and the way he entered it was with the abduction phenomena. So right away, we're not talking UFOs. We're talking ETs in the bedroom. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so, and and from that moment on, I mean, it, it fit perfectly into where I was at. But uh, the ultimate decision that set me on my path to today was in my last few weeks up there because I, I was a volunteer. It was not a permanent deal, and I it was time to move on. I, I had the I had this this kind of epiphany that just downloaded into my head. What are you going to do next? And and I and I said, look, uh, it's clear, ever, even more clear after being a peer for those five months, that the problem is not science. It's, it's not science. It's not evidence. Nope. No. I, so what's I the had, problem? I had the same incredible naivete. The problem with artifacts in the solar system has nothing to do with science. It's all about the politics. Politics. And so, therefore, if that's the problem, if that's why – we haven't been living in a quote, and I didn't use that term then, post-disclosure world, is because of, of a political decision by the United States government for national security reasons that they would, they would, I eventually called it embargo, they would embargo this issue for national security. And therefore, until you solve, solve that political issue, you're never going to get the goods from the government and you can pile evidence up and spend all your extra money or your social security checks, researching and writing books and going out and cases you could you could work your fingers to the bone for MUFON. It isn't going to matter. And so I said, look, I, that's what I'm going to do. And then I had the second epiphany. Nobody's ever registered as a lobbyist on this issue. Mm. Nobody was stupid enough to do that. <laughs> so if I if I rushed down to Washington and I did, I, I didn't waste any time. I immediately create a name and immediately file as the lobbyist. I'll be the first person to ever do it. And that could be a pretty good way to start, a good hook. And I was right. I registered as a lobbyist, and after a number of months, the Washington Post found out about it and said, hmm, we need to talk to this guy. They sent out a reporter. It did a pretty good article, very substantial, long article with a massive photo. It was on the cover, I mean, the front page of the business section, which you can find on my website if you go to the media coverage. Worst photo ever taken of me, without question. <laughs> I mean, it's just the worst. Well, you had a tad more hair then. Didn't matter. The hair didn't help. It was an awful photo. <laughs> but I was holding up. But in this photo, I'm holding up John Mack's book. Uh, and I say the book, the symposium uh, record of his symposium in Harvard, uh, it, it, uh, MIT in 1992, the one he put on with Pritchard. Uh, a symposium on alien, I think, discussion, I forget. I should know that. And so that's, that's the beginning. Okay, and so that's what gets me going. Now, what kept me going, uh, you know, for 26 years, uh, uh, 
Well, first of all, a the, the, quarter I mean, of you, a century. Yeah, yeah. Once you enter this field, particularly late in life, what you discover is other options immediately fade away very quickly. <laughs> right. So it's like it, it's a built-in lock. You're locked in. Right here, you've taken this path. It better be the right one because other paths are literally disappearing uh, on a daily basis. But th- to, to answer the question as succinctly as possible, every day that I was involved, every everything I learned, uh, I began to come to understand some, something very significant. That one. The extraterrestrial presence was the most important thing the human race is ever going to have to ultimately deal with. Two, the implication, the political implications of it are enormous. Three, the truth embargo that the government imposed has had significant consequences, not well, many of which were very negative. All right, and then four, that when you that when you look at it long enough, you also you can't you can't ignore a lot of collateral aspects of the national security state or what I used to call the secret empire. And you begin to realize that the, the, the nuclear arms race, very likely also connected with the ET reality, which the government's known about since 46 latest, seven latest, has helped to generate this massive intelligence empire uh, and also encourage very substantial abuses of secrecy, which was undermining and, and, and also breaking our bank, in other words, bankrupting us and undermining trusting government, that you, when you put that all together, this issue is at the center of the fate of the United States and probably the globe in the 20th century. Turns out it's going to be into the 21st century. And therefore, it's the biggest issue in the world. And I'm the only lobbyist. And I'm going, wow, that's great. And so my passion for it grew because I knew that it had the potential to solve uh, or reverse uh, some uh, bad courses we've taken uh, more than anything else. And the number one thing that was on my mind was the nuclear arms race. Uh, and then the number two thing was the the addiction to war that the human race has. So it's now in, well, in its 10,000th year mm. uh, that these two things alone are tied into this somehow and that resolving the ET issue and getting disclosure – might be the way to get out from under this 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 craziness that well, we, we, we have not been able to give up. You know that Sagan had this standard line. I mean, I, I, I probably came off as being very critical of Carl. Carl was brilliant. Carl was imaginative. Carl could think outside the box. And I got the feeling in the later years that he was constrained by forces around him. And when he began to break out of those uh, weird things happened. One of the things that he he talked about was that if we contacted ETs, the most important question, and this was the, the strict paradigm that we're us and they are them and never the twain shall meet, total mm-hmm. strangers. My model, of course, is that a lot of ETs are relatives and you know what happens with relatives and families. But anyway, his mm-hmm. model was strangers. He said the most important thing to ask them if we ever could was how did you survive your nuclear crisis? Because he saw the same thing Mm. that you saw and I see, which is now, tonight, we've got a guy, a madman in Moscow named Putin, and every other week he's waving the nuclear, you know, uh, weapons uh, banner, and we are literally 
moments away from catastrophe based on the whim of one guy. That is no position for humanity to be in. Um, okay. We've got about four minutes to the top of the hour. I want to bring in Barbara, and then we'll go through the same drill with how she got involved in this. Barbara Honiger okay. has served in high-level government positions, including White House policy analyst, special assistant to the President of the United States for domestic policy, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade, she was senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. So without further ado, Barbara Honiger, come on down. Hello, Richard. Hello. Well, how did you wind up in this party? What got you interested in extraterrestrials, UFOs, and things that are deeply important to ultimately who we all are? Well, I hope I have more than three minutes. Oh, to of course, the- of course. You just start, and then we'll we will continue on the other side of the break. Okay. Well, um, I didn't expect this show to be so uh, focused on the extraterrestrial question. Um, the way you had presented it to me, I thought we were going to be talking more terrestrial geopolitics, which is where I'd like to focus. Um, uh, you know, when I get into the meat of my of what I want to say. Uh, but to answer your question, how did I get? Or, or am I, a better question, am I interested in this question? Yes, I am. Uh, from a different perspective, I believe, from either of you. And that, to me, the, the one place where I definitely overlap with Steve, and I really appreciated the candor of, of what he just went through. Uh, there was a lot in that bio uh, summary that, that I didn't know, and I appreciate greatly. Um, but where I do overlap a thousand percent uh, is I believe you started this program with Roswell. And to me, what matters about Roswell is both its chronological, um, almost uh, chronological identity uh, and its physical proximity to where our bombers uh, were were based mm-hmm. that dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, I'll tell you what, let's hold it uh, there. We're at the yeah. top of the hour. When we come back, we will have the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. My guest this morning for the first two hours, Steve Bassett and Barbara Honiger. One got into politics through the Martian doorway and then the ET perspective. The other was a senior policy analyst in a very male-oriented White House under President Ronald Reagan. And in the background, on this 4th of July weekend, the U.S. Navy band singing America the Beautiful. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.